Tis the season to shine with H&M. Discover the holiday collection and find fashionable pieces for your wardrobe or for under the tree. Get inspired and dazzle with this year's glam. From tuxedo styles, bow detailed pieces, impressive prints, and more. From unforgettable looks to unforgettable gifts. With fashion finds to home decor, find it all at H&M. Treat your loved ones and yourself this season. Shop in-store or at hm.com. guys, it's Bert. Don't fast forward. Listen to me for one second. My book is so close to being on the national bestseller list. So if you haven't, please do me a favor. Stop right now. Go to BertBertBert.com and buy a copy. They are in stores, but this needs to happen before Saturday at midnight. So if you love me, if you love this podcast, if you like my stand-up and you enjoy Trip Flip, let me put the moniker best-selling author in front of my name. It would be the greatest honor, and you can help me do that. So please, go to BertBertBert.com. And if you've already bought my book, thank you so much. I love you with all my heart. And now, without further ado, stand-up comedian, podcaster, Sirius XM radio host, author himself, Greg Fitzsimmons. This is I wish I had someone to run my podcast like Joe does. Because I feel like I do spend the majority of my podcast panicking that I'm not recording. Right. You know? I know. I check mine constantly while I'm doing it. No, fuck that, though. I don't, you know, somebody. I don't want someone in here. That's the only problem is like Red Band kind of fits in that equation. Are we doing the podcast now? Yeah, we're doing it. It's not like yours. There's no, like, I'm not a really good interviewer. In the man cave, the person that killed the hardest at the cowhead roast, easily, without a doubt. Oh, Jesus. Was that fun? Fuck yes. That was fun as shit. And I had to follow him, Greg Fitzsimmons. (laughs) The crazy thing was, here you are in Tampa, which no offense to Tampa, but it's not like (laughs) Chicago or New York or L.A. And all of a sudden you got Norton there and you're there and Florentine. Bobby Kelly. Bobby Kelly. I mean, it was just a fucking head. I, I bet you they reached out like, fuck it. We might as well ask. And every one of us was like, we're in. Yeah. Yeah. I, I just, uh, yeah. I, I was in Orlando doing my show. Right. That so, worked out. Yeah. So I, I was like, oh, I'll fucking pop over real quick. Yeah. I, I would have popped over anyway. But when I found out all you guys were going to be there, I was like, okay, I'm definitely fucking going. Yeah, he basically, he just texted me and he's like, um, do you want to come to a roast to me? And I was like, dude, I literally have tickets on hold to go to Mexico because that's our kid's spring break. Yeah. I wish I could. And then he texts me back. He's like, come out. We'll get you tickets to, uh, you know, uh, Bush Gardens and, and uh, Universal. And I was like, uh, fuck. You know, my sister was coming down to see my mom in Florida. Yeah. So we just switched it over, and then you ended up being there, and you upgraded. He was going to uh, get me some shit tickets, and you got me like the fast pass, fast front track. of the line, fast track. You cannot do Orlando's. You can't do uh, Universal Orlando without fast track. I got to tell you, that was the highlight of the trip. That Universal Orlando is so badass. Yeah, it genuinely is. Did you do Spider Man? My kids did. I didn't. It's the 
most insane ride I've ever been on in my entire life. Really? It redefines how roller coasters are made, and all I'm thinking is, in 10 years, I'll still be old enough to ride them. I'm not going to have heart problems yet. Right. But I'm telling you, it's going to, once they can incorporate that, what they're doing with Spider-Man, which is is basically... Um, uh, what's the technology where it's all around you? Vibrators. Yeah, but no, but it's like it's it's the uh, seats. Flashlight. No, <laughs> no. The what's the the TV? Three D. It's three D. Four D. It's it's almost four D because it's fires and sniff. Fires going at you. They have smells. They have burnt rubber uh, when you take off. Ladder forty nine. And when they do that with like a with like Nine a top Eleven to a dragster, close, close. All right. Um. Yeah, that was the greatest way to do it. Uh. Um, all right, now here's so I was like, I can't have Greg over here and not have questions that I want to know as a fan. Hey, yep. there we go. This is fun because I've had you on my podcast a couple times. Yeah. And I, so the dynamic is very different now because I'm used to being able to ask you stuff as a, a fan of yours mm-hmm. and being, being very much like intrigued by the mythology Ugh. of you and then realizing Ugh. that. There's a whole other guy in there besides that guy who's insecure and self-loathing and thinks he's fat. You think you're fat? Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. definitely, definitely. And I think I think I did something to my liver this last week because I have a pain in my side. But uh, so now, okay, let's start. I want to my number one. I want to talk about Boston. I want to talk about you not drinking. I want to talk about your start in comedy. But the thing that most fascinates me: the first time you did Stern, and 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 was that the first time that you went, oh fuck? I just murdered that I might be a regular. I might be able to come back all the time. Like, cause Stern is Stern was our Carson. I think. Right. Stern right. and, and, and O and A and, and but like, there was also a backstory with me because, you know, my father was one of the biggest disc jockeys in New York my whole life. I did know that. Yeah. So when yeah. Stern was coming up, he used to attack my dad because that was his MO. Yeah. He'd go after Imus and he'd go after my dad and so he was persona non grata in my house. I mean, he really? was he was the devil. And so um, uh, my dad had died. He died young. And so Cold. he was fifty. And so so Stern um, did a very lovely eulogy about him. Talked about how how much he looked up to him, how much he respected him, learned from him, blah blah. blah. And you know, and talked about how he he had teased him, and then he kind of felt bad. Is that plane okay in the background? And uh, talked about how he kind of felt bad about it. And so then I was sort of over it because I had secretly been listening anyway. I wouldn't let my mother know that. And then all of a sudden I come in on the show and they book me to do the show. And I'm like, I'm feeling really weird because they reached out to me. And did they know that you're his son? Oh, yeah. Okay. So. And you're doing comedy. You're how long you've been doing comedy this time? Uh, Ten years? This is 2001, so oh, I've been shit. doing it for 11 years. Okay. And they reached out to me because I'd, I had won. the, the um, HBO used to do this comedy festival in, in Aspen every year. And I had won God, the... Do you the, realize you're t- saying that? Like, do you realize how different this business is? I know that because I remember when I started, that was like the shit to get. Right. Now it just doesn't exist. It doesn't exist. And so I won the jury award for best comedian at the festival. So that gave me some buzz. And Jackie the Joke Man had just left. So they're bringing in comics to see who might potentially take over that seat, and which obviously ended up being Artie Lang in yeah. the long run, rightfully so. And so I came in, and I'm like, all right, I don't know if they're, I'm being hoodwinked. Are they setting me up? Are they going to shit on me? Oh, that is the worst fucking feeling, too. Right. To, to, to be in your hotel room or in your house preparing for your rebuttals. Right. So I'm coming in on a Monday, and on the Friday show... It was reruns that week because they were off, 
And what do they play? An old episode where Stern is shitting on my father. And all of a sudden, I can't sleep. I'm like, oh, this is an elaborate fuck with me. And so I come in there, and I, my, my guard was up. I was ready to go into the attack mode if I needed to. I was ready to rope a dope, whatever it took. Yeah. And I came in, and it, it, you know, he brought it up. He was very respectful about it. It was, turns out it was just a fluke that that episode had been pulled. Really? And, um, and so we just, you 2001, know. 2001, he's still on in New York. Right, it was a terrestrial. So this is the arguably the biggest radio show in the world at the time. Yeah, at, at its peak. Yeah. yeah, it was huge. And, and you and you're and you're uh you're 2001. You I know that I'm in New York doing stand up now. So I know right. where you are and I know uh you're I'd not producing to LA. yet. I'd, I'd moved to LA about 2 years before. No. I moved to LA from New York and I my career took a snooze and I was like what the fuck did I do out here? And that that comedy festival got me back back in the business. You know, I mean, I yeah. was I mean, I was always doing stand up, but in terms of like uh, in 96 I hosted a game show on MTV. I remember that. Like 96 through 98 was like crazy to you. I went from nobody had heard of me and then another festival. I did the Montreal Comedy Festival. And back when it was development executives, network executives, back when the big wigs went to the comedy festivals yeah. and people walked out of there, you know, every, you know, Ray Romano walked out of there with his show and like all people were getting launched out of these festivals. And so I come out and I do two five-minute sets and when i get off stage and a buzz starts so then my third set i get off stage and it's literally like brandon tartikoff hands me his card and then and somebody goes dude there's a line forming there was a line when i walked out of there i had an inch thick stack of business cards from nbc abc warner brothers everybody everybody wanted meetings when i left there that weekend I had the biggest manager in the business, the biggest agent in the business, a development deal with Fox. So you have Jason Steinberg. Yep. No. Right. Barry Katz. <laughs> Barry Katz. <laughs> and uh, and I, I, I had a spot booked on Letterman. Oh, shut up. Seriously? I had all this shit that came out of that. Is that, so for- is that the highlight? When you look back, is that the moment where you went, oh, I just changed my life? Oh, that's tough to beat. I, yeah, that's tough to beat. You know, it was it was like everything just a line. I mean, the fact that nobody had seen me. The problem is today is that there's su- there's such a demand for comedians that have a voice and that are funny that they grab them before they're there yet. Yeah. And I had been doing stand up for eight years, but I mean hard. Like I started out of Boston. We were doing seven shows a week. You know, seven nights a week. You were out and on the road. In back when it was the comedy boom, so there was actually. You know, on a quiet Tuesday night, there was a hundred people in a room. Yeah. So you got to really develop your chops. As and, opposed- and you all were murderers. Well, we got to be because we were fortunate enough to start in a city that had great comedy, and and so you know, me and Rogan started together, and we got. But but basically, now I, I really think before somebody gets that strong, they're seen, and then they're not a big deal because they've been seen. Yeah. And I I've been doing it long enough where it was like. Bam! I was killing, and and it was also I had hair back then. Oh, you should have seen me. Bert. Were you drinking? No, you were already sober. Yes, that's a, the big thing about sobriety is you need the payoff. Sobriety's okay. This should be a treat, if, right? If you, if you start succeeding because you're sober, like but, Billy Gardell. Yeah, like Billy Gardell, like Chris Hardwick. Hardwick is a great fucking example. Great story. I just did that show last night. Oh yeah, the At Midnight show. Oh, I haven't seen it. I mean, I've seen it, but I didn't see that one. 
Well, it, it airs tonight. Okay. So when does your podcast go up? Uh, next week. So if you TiVo'd me last week, thanks for watching. <laughs> what are you, it's backlog? A, real, what do you got, no. Jackie the Joke Man already? I, got, uh, I, this n- week? Yeah, I, I backlog because I'm going on the road, so I need someone for next week. So wait, okay. So, uh, okay, Montreal, your closing joke at Montreal that year. Closing joke was, well, it was what I ended up naming my corporation. It was about... I used to, uh, I lived in Manhattan for like nine years before I came out to LA. I'm from New York, but then I started in Boston. Then I came to New York City for about nine years. And I used to get around exclusively on rollerblades. I would go to my sets. I'd walk into clubs with rollerblades and take them off. And I'd skate from the Upper West Side to the Village to the Upper East Side all in, all in one night. And so one, one, this was actually during the day. I was going up 10th Avenue uh, on my rollerblades. And I, I used to grab onto the back of trucks. UPS trucks were the best because they had this big rail off the back, and they were so heavy and slow that it was easy to hold on. They never just took off. They, yeah, it would take off, but it didn't accelerate fast. Yeah. It was easy. And so you'd have to jump over potholes and shit, but it was a free ride. And so I'm hanging off the back of a UPS truck, and I had on a shirt that had maroon horizontal stripes. Okay, pretty thick maroon and white horizontal stripes. And so all of a sudden there's a cop behind me and he gets on his loudspeaker and he says, hey, donut boy, get off the back of the truck. And I'm thinking to myself, is that me? Donut boy? Donut boy. Donut boy. And all I think is it looks like one of those French pastry chef shirts. That's how funny New York City cops are. In one second, he comes up with Donut Boy. And, donut so I over, boy. and I was like, what is he? I'm doing this. It sounds like a superhero or something, you know? Like like there's Croissant Man and Donut Boy. And so, and so I just, I couldn't stop laughing. And I don't even remember the whole routine. It was just based off of that that had happened. And uh, and so, yeah, I closed with that. And um and then that that's the set that they basically booked me on Letterman and said, just do that set on Letterman. Ah, what a great feeling that is, too. Yeah. You don't have to fucking get notes. You don't have to work through it. No. Nope. You got your set. Got you're ready. Set. You already know what kills. You've done it three times in pressure situations. Right. And my father had died about five years before that. And so, and he was, and I, I had a really hard time dealing with it because uh, he and I were very close, but he was an alcoholic and he was abusive. And so I had a very mixed relationship with him. And he died while we weren't talking. We hadn't spoken for like probably about six or seven months. And it was the first time I had not spoken to him in my life. And it was because he'd been going through a really bad bout of drinking that I'd been around. And I was going to Al-Anon meetings. And I'd been sober now, recently sober. Yeah. And so he died while that happened. And so when I went to do Letterman, it was just one of those moments where I really felt like you know, he was so supportive of my stand-up. He was so proud of me. It was really, like, in a different time, there's no doubt my father would have been a stand-up comic and, like, yeah. a very successful one. Like, he, he used to MC benefit shows, and he had all his stories and jokes that he would do, and he fucking loved it, you yeah. know? And so I always just, I just felt at that moment of going on Letterman, like, I was just, I was thinking about him a lot. And it was almost like this thought I had going out there was like, Almost like talk to him, like, here we go, Dad, you know? And I went out, and the set just could not have gone better. I mean, out of the gate, they just liked me, and just, it was, I felt so amazing. Like, And then I got off stage, and I just 
burst into tears. I just I immediately thought of him, and I was just crying. Yeah. And Faith Hill, because it meant more to me than any. I mean, you talk about the 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 moment in Montreal definitely felt like you know this is the biggest thing. But but Letterman to this day, that first appearance is the thing that will mean more to me than anything ever has. Like Letterman was it to yeah. me. And so that's why it was such a release to have done it, and it went well. And and Faith Hill was going on next, and she came up and she gave me this big country music hug. It was so sweet. <laughs> It was just so I was I didn't even know who the fuck she was. I'd never heard of Faith Hill. Yeah. I just knew that this beautiful country music star gave me a big hug. <laughs> <laughs> and the producers were there and you know, Zoe Friedman and yeah. Daniel Callison and they were just like, What the fuck are you doing crying? No, they were very sweet. <laughs> Shake the sand out of your pussy. Yeah. Fucking man up. Man up. It's stand up comedy. Would you just <laughs> So so um yeah, Letterman's one of those things where it, there's so many things, that, having watched it a million times, where you walk out and you don't know whether you're supposed to wave or look at Paul and say, hey, Paul, because right. you don't know him. Right. Like, it's such a... It, 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 I think it is a benchmark for every comic, and I, I, I didn't have that really with The Tonight Show, because I didn't really... I mean, Carson was the guy I watched, but yeah. he wasn't around. What, um, so, so you move out to L.A., and then, and, then, and then what? Well, then I hosted a game show on MTV for two seasons. Uh, called Idiot Savants, and that was uh, that was kind of a big deal because uh, it was it was MTV, you know, and yeah. so I would go do colleges, and like these college girls were lining up, but I had met my wife, and I used to cheat on my girlfriends like it was a varsity sport all I mean, the time, all the time. Yep, and then but I knew how bad it was. I knew how shitty it felt to try to look the girlfriend in the eye after yeah. that. And so with my wife, I was like, you know, and I knew the night I met her, I said to the woman that introduced us, our friend, I said, I'm marrying your friend someday. And I knew it. And I didn't want to fuck it up. So it was really this trial of, are you really going to marry this girl? Because God is going to throw pussy at you. You are going to be staying in a Motel 6. You know, you're going to do shows where you bomb. You're going to be all alone. You're going to be fucking miserable. But you're going to be in West Virginia. This is one of the nights. I do a college in some little shit town in West Virginia. And, you know, and it actually went pretty well. But then afterwards, the kids were like, yeah, we're going down to the river. You want to hang out? And I'm like, oh, I got to see this. <laughs> so I go down to the river. And, uh, and there's this one girl that's really flirting with me. And so um, I'm hanging out in the dorms with her and her friends. And she goes, I just got to get changed before we go down to the river. And she just takes her shirt off. And puts on another shirt, and I'm like, huh? And they're like hillbillies. Yeah. And we go down to the river, and they're smoking pot, they're playing bongos, they're dancing. It's like out of deliverance, some weird shit. And then I'm driving, uh, I have my car, my rent-a-car, and I drive back up to the dorms, and I pull up to the front, and this girl was Daisy Duke, you know? Yeah. And she goes, uh, she goes, do you want to, uh, you want to come up, come up to my room? And I said, uh, "No, I I can't." I said, "I'm I'm just gonna I'm just gonna go back to my room." Well, what are you going to do in your room? I go, "I am just gonna lock the door and watch some porn." <laughs> she goes, "Well, you can watch some porn, or you can come upstairs and make some porn." And my penis actually reached out and punched me in the face <laughs> and said, "Are you shitting me, Greg?" And I said, "Thank you." That was it. Oh. And I went home, and and 
I still re- I still resent my wife for that. <laughs> I really do. I, there's been yeah, there's been times I've I've not fucked chicks, and I thought, God damn it! And you come home angry at your wife, right? Oh, with a picture of them. Do you have any right? You don't do that. Oh yeah, fuck ah, yeah. You want credit? Fuck yeah. You want actual credit? Oh yeah. I remember the first time I did it. I was it was right after shit had Georgia, and I was down in uh, Houston Laugh Stop, and. Uh, <laughs> And this chick wanted to fuck me, and my wife wasn't fucking me because she had a baby. Yeah. And she was, like, dealing with, like, that. Right. And uh, and I came back, and I was like, just to give you a heads up, I totally could have cheated on you with the hottest chick. And She's you, like, and I had a picture. Right. But I had not paid attention that well to the picture or the girl, and the girl clearly had a lazy eye. And my oh. wife pointed it out. She's like, really? <laughs> that was what you could have? And I was like, oh, fuck, I didn't even see that. She was like, "Really? That's what you brought home?" Yeah, yeah, yeah. There's been a couple. There's been a couple times where I really actually uh, look back and I go, "Like God," that, but I and I still remember them. Well, I also had there was this girl when I met my wife, and I was dating. Um, I was dating a few chicks at the time. Yeah. Like it was definitely, like I said. Um, before I met my wife, I think the, the MTV show might have been on already. Like, I was doing better than I'd ever done in my life. Yeah. So it was really pretty amazing that I, when I met my wife, I was like, I'm going to marry her. Because, you know, option A was way better, which is continue doing what you're doing. Yeah. And because I never was, I never got, I sl- I've slept with many women, but I was always a numbers guy, much more than quality. <laughs> Definitely quantity over quality. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, I was just more of like, you know, you you will have sex with me. Let's do it. <laughs> and so so I'm dating a few women, and there's one in particular that I met her once briefly, and we exchanged numbers because she was going to New Orleans to write a novel. Very fucking smart shit. Oh, chick. is this Anne Rice? It's Anne Rand. <laughs> it's Anne Rhine? Ayn Rand. Ayn Rand, a man or a woman? It's a woman, but she looks kind of manly. Right. And she's dead. Oh, yeah. But her, her beliefs aren't. Thank God. <laughs> and so I'm, um, I'm, I get into this phone relationship with her where we're talking for three, four hours a night, every night. Really? I mean, she's just, I got everything in common with her. We love the same books and you know, movies and just philosophy. and every, it just We were having these deep, great conversations, sexy voice and... And so now she's coming back from New Orleans, and I hadn't seen her, and I had to say to my wife, and I'm meeting up with this chick, and I'm saying to my future wife that I had to break up with somebody. I had to break up with a couple people so we could go out, and she was kind of dating somebody who she broke up with, so we could clean it up. And so I go break up with this chick, and she's got a beard, like not a full beard like you, but she's got a fair amount of growth under the chin that I hadn't really noticed the first time. <laughs> Maybe she'd grown it out in New Orleans. Yeah. But she had a, she couldn't be in the circus, but she also couldn't be in, in like a good nightclub. Yeah. Like she would have been stopped at the Velvet Rope. She couldn't be in the circus, but she couldn't be. <laughs> That's a nice window. <laughs> So, so I see it, and I'm like, "Oh, all right, this hurts less." Yeah, you know, as much as I, you know, spiritually and emotionally, you're my soulmate. You got a beard, yeah, and it'll always be there, whether you shave it now and maintain it. I will always know there's a beard under your. 
I shouldn't say all this because if she is ever listening, I'm, I'm doing this for comic, for comic. Uh, oh, I share so much shit where I go. Like I was, I told a story on a podcast yesterday about um, the best improv I had on stage versus the worst, and the best one was uh, was um, I should say the name of the guy's podcast, uh, Road Stories with uh, with Murray Valliero, Verliana, Verliana. Anyway, um, and the best one was a proposal. They wanted me to do a proposal for a guy and a girl on stage, and I didn't know what I was going to do, and the guy didn't fucking know, and I came up with it on the fly, and it was the most genius thing I'd ever done. Right. And so, uh, and, I, and what I did is I, I had us, me and the, I had me take my shirt off. I put my shirt around the girl's head, so she had it blindfolded, and I said, "Now you're going to feel our chests, and you got to guess which one is your husband and which one is me." And so, as I put the blindfold on her, he gets down on the knee with the ring, and. I pull the blindfold off, and she starts bawling. Everyone starts crying. The flip flop of that, the worst one. And I hope. Wait, did not... did she feel your chest? No, 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 no. She did. I, she was had her hands out like this, oh. ready to go. You could have dropped. put your cock against her hand. That would have been a I... better improv. <laughs> and then done that real quick, and then go. Oh, it's yeah. okay. Look, right. she's proposing. Right. Um, and then the worst one was the exact same one, but it was with Stroop in Columbus. And Stroop told me, um, he was like, uh, he was like, yeah, yeah, it's a proposal. Like, oh, I got this one nailed. Don't worry about it. So he's, I was like, have the have them come meet me right before, and it was a fucking chick proposing to a dude, and as when I did the blindfold off the dude, he looked at me and was like, no, like, and I was oh, like, no. and I was like, motherfucker, no and he's way, like, and he, he was mouthing to me, why would you do this? Oh, and, I was, and the girl's already on her knee, and and Fuck. and the energy's not cool, the energy's not like, oh, the energy's yeah. like a bunch of dudes going, what the fuck, yeah, and he said yes, but he was like, yeah, 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 I'll do it. Yeah, and then they went and they how sat. emasculating. Oh, but uh, but so I tell that story, and I hope to God they're not still married. Going, no, it wasn't that bad. But uh, well, the follow up to mine was that my wife and I, and I told her that I'd broken up with these girls, and you know, kind of made myself out to be a stud. Yeah, and then we bump into this girl, and my wife saw the beard, and to this day she's like, yeah, yeah, <laughs> I know things were really good. <laughs> Things were really good before me. You gave up a lot for me. <laughs> you always describe your wife as like, and I, I've looked for pictures of your wife on the internet, and I can never find them, but you always describe your wife as slamming hot compared to you. You're like, you're always like, my wife is beautiful, gorgeous, and I'm always like, I want to see what she looks like. Well, it's so funny you say that, because literally this morning, my wife was Googling, she was Googling me for some reason, maybe that's what wives do. And then Greg Fitzsimmons' wife came up in the search engine in Google. Yeah. And it was all the, the all these different chicks on the road that I got my arm around. You know, they take pictures after shows. Yeah. But there's this one chick in particular. She's a comedian from Florida. and Kathleen McGee. I'm forgetting her name at this point. What? Is it Tampa? No, West Palm. Okay. And um, great chick. And I've worked with her a few times. Lisa. And little f- tall girl? Right. Lisa, yeah. Right. Yeah. And... Uh, for whatever reason, she is tagged as my wife in like a half a dozen I different saw that photos. Pic- I saw that picture and I was like, that's not, that's not right, his wife. Right. I know her. I've worked with her. And uh, as a matter of fact, her boyfriend lives out here now, um, uh, Rich- Richards. Um, uh, his last name is Richards. Uh, John? John Richards? Fuck. Anyway, I'm so bad with names. So anyway, I, I, I looked it up. You cannot find one single picture of my wife online, and that's been my policy. Like, there's not a single picture of my kids online. I just forbid it. I, I yeah. don't want that shit out there. 
Yeah. But I'll I can show you a picture of her on my phone. No, no, no. I like the I like to I imagine what she looks she's like. She's got like thirty four D cups, body solid, flat stomach. Really? She's got bright blue eyes, perfect face. People she she was Julia Roberts' assistant for years. Really? And everybody said she looked exactly like Julia. Holy shit. How did right. you guys meet? Um my friend Sarah Firon, who is a comedic actress in New York, was joining the Friars Club. I sponsored her to join the Friars Club, and I was a big friar. Whatever my, happened to the Friars Club? It's still kicking in New York. Really? Yeah, my dad was a big friar, and okay. uh, he was like the token Irish guy at the Friars Club. So I spent my childhood there, you know, hanging out with Henny Youngman and uh, Malzi Lawrence and Freddie Roman, like all those old Borscht Bell comics I knew since I was a little kid. And so uh, when I got old enough, I went to, uh, after my dad died, I moved to New York and I went to acting school for two years while I was doing stand-up. And I used to spend my days at the Friars Club, shooting pool, working out, going to the steam room, eating lunch with these guys. And so uh, I, took, I took my friend there to, for the ceremony when she became a member, and she brought my wife with her to see the Friars Club. And uh, we, I was in the Milton Berle room, talked to her for like 20 minutes, and she was with another dude. But I was so cocky, I just fucking blew past the other dude. And, and you, that's, that's your club. Talked to her. That's my club. Yeah. Right. And so uh, I then I pursued her. Hey, Kevin Brennan came with me one night. Cause, Kevin Brennan. Yeah, I knew. Fuck. I knew you know, that, he was my in in comedy. No shit. He was my only person I knew because he grew up with my uncles. In Philly? In Philly. And, and he, his parents, his family lived next door to my, cu- my one uncle and all my cousins. And so my Uncle Dave said, I know Kevin Brennan. When you go around, you find Kevin Brennan. And so I found Kevin Brennan at the night they closed. Um, uh, they Catch closed a Rising Star. Catch a Rising Star. And I said, Kevin, I'm Bert uh, Kreischer. Dave Hobson's my uncle. And he's like, oh, okay. I said, I'm related to all the Hobsons, and I want to get into comedy. If you have any advice you can give me, what would it be? And he goes, oh, don't talk to me. Talk to this guy. And he sat me down next to a tell. And he was like, ask him everything you want. He'll tell you everything you need to know. Right. And I was like, hey, man, I'm Bert. And Attell just sat there like, ugh. I remember his advice was get out now. Right. He was like, it doesn't get any better. It only gets right. worse. Right. But, um, but yeah, Kevin Brennan, he is so fucking funny, too. Yeah, he's really, really. So you and Kevin Brennan. I'm so, sorry. So Kevin came. I was like, Kevin, you got to come with me. I'm going down. There's this girl I like, and she's selling tickets for this benefit down in Soho. And I don't want to walk in alone. So he comes down with me. And uh, I'm I'm flirting with her, and yeah. Long story short, I um I ask her out, and we date for like three years, and then I say I want to take you to the Friars Club one night. And we hadn't I hadn't brought her back uh, for whatever reason, so I took her to the Milton Berle room, and I had the manager he had put the lights down low, and he had Unforgettable playing because that was a uh, on our first date. This homeless guy in the Bowery sang Unforgettable to us, and we slow danced in the street. And so that was playing. You're such a fucking different person than I see you on stage. Right. And then I... Uh, I there's a part of you, there's a part of you that, there's a part of you that you don't see, especially in your stand-up, is your confidence. Like you're extremely confident and you're not afraid of a lot of shit. Like, and I only say that because I remember one of the first things I saw in, about you, you, I remember a uh, long time ago you were on the road and you were just Googling people and, you, and I'd heard you had a joke about, it's hard to jerk off on the same computer that as soon as I close that window, a picture of my kids pop up. <laughs> right. And and I had just had that happen, oh, but I hadn't no had that. Shit. I hadn't written the joke, but I heard you do it. And I went, oh my oh, God, that's, that's so funny. funny. I just thought that. And so I started Googling you. And I was obviously, I think I was listening to your podcast at the time, or maybe I'd heard you on Sirius XM. Yeah. And one of the first pictures was you surfing in Hawaii. And I was like, whoa. Right. I did not picture 
<laughs> Greg Fitzsimmons, as, as someone who, there's a big step is to be someone that goes, I would like to learn how to surf. Right. I'm a, I'm a grown man, and this is something I think I might like, and I'm going to rent a board in Hawaii, go out in the break, and learn how to surf, and you were surfing. Well, I think that I, I, I grew up having a life that was, I was very fortunate. You know, my dad, we grew up, we had some money, and we, 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 we did things, and I think that I always had it in my head that I was going to have a family. I grew up in a family that was very close. It yeah. had its problems, but I really wanted, uh, and I took my son surfing. We took surf lessons together in Hawaii, and I just always wanted to be the person. Like I didn't want to be the comic that becomes like the chain-smoking guy that's in a coffee shop till four in the morning and is miserable and doesn't do things in his yeah. life. It's very easy to get, and, and you're like this. You do shit. I mean, you got a TV show about doing shit. Like, yeah. And I just feel like, being a comic doesn't preclude you having a family, doing activities, traveling, yeah. uh, you know, having close friendships with people outside of comedy. And I think that that's something I learned from my dad is that, you know, you got you to gotta live your life. Don't sit around waiting for this business to happen to you because I think the thing as a comic, not every comic, I mean, you look at a guy like Attell and that is the life he lives. Yeah. But for me, I think it's more about, I guess, talking about my life and my family and things I've done, that's what gives me material. You were the first guy I saw on stage when I first moved out to L.A. <clears throat> who wasn't doing what was technically New York comedy about hookers in the back of a taxi or right. or like, or like you know, like uh, kill, the ho- kill the Hooker was like the, the tag. The, it seemed like... There's always a midget watching you kill a hooker. Yeah. And uh, a Special Olympics is going on in and, the background. And you were talking about running... A, uh, I'm saying it wrong... But running a tra- having a three way with your wi- with your wife and your son while she breastfeeds yeah. my son, right, right. <laughs> and I was like, I was like, oh, like I remember stepping back, going, oh my god, like this is, oh, this is so, it's it was so globally different than anything I had seen in the clubs in New York. Yeah. And uh, but and then and then as I kind of, and I was one of those people that like very quickly realized I don't want to just be the guy at the end of the bar drinking by myself. I want to have a family. I want to I want to live a life. I want to have a more global existence than just the 20 dudes i hang out with on the road or in the right. clubs and but you were the first guy that i saw doing that and that picture in hawaii is one of the things i was like whoa 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 wow. just don't surf right right like i know i do and i keep <laughs> and I, that i had on a gilligan's island yes, hat and a yeah, shirt yeah you did it's a great picture <laughs> you look you look like you're terrified of the sun it's like vampire surfing i know i just want to tell people it's not as cool as it sounds <laughs> And the best part is the guy who was teaching me and my son, he was born in uh, Kauai, and his family had run this surf camp for like three generations. And it was this perfect little baby break where, you know, it's a perfect place to learn how to surf. Who is it? Was it Titus? What are you talking about? The, the surf camp. I know, I, I, oh, I don't know the name of it. It's on the north beach of... Titus uh, is the oldest family in, in uh, Titus... Uh, uh, come, uh, I forget his last name. He's... Uh, they're, I think I know who you're talking about. Yeah, the mom kind of runs it, and, and they're descendant. They're the descendant of kings. No shit. Yeah, and and that family is the in with Laird Hamilton because Laird no Hamilton kidding. lives on Kauai. Wow. And Laird Hamilton and 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 those guys like the, the dog town guys. Yeah, Hawaii is a really small town and and uh, like a little really small state. Everyone kind of knows each other, especially when you go to those islands. You're right. And so, uh, but yeah, I think oh, I know that's who you're talking cool. About. Yeah, it's. Yeah, so the guy was like almost philosophical. He was like this 19-year-old dude, dark, tan, sleepy, you know, laid back. 
and he brings you out on the boards and then he and then he goes uh he give he only gives you like three tips to start. Yeah. And the first one is if you look down, you're gonna go down. <laughs> if you look up, stay up. And I was like, did you just mean that is the perfect metaphor for life? Or are we talking about <laughs> surfing here? And like everything he said was like these I was like, Oh, this is the fucking greatest. And we surfed like bitches. Big boards. Yeah. So you get on a little wave with a big board. It's like being on a yacht. You just stand there. And it's and it's funny shit. Yeah. It's it fun. really is. Like if you've never gone surfing, it's one of the my new thing, and I had a dream about it last night that's so fucking crazy. I had a dream I went paddle boarding in uh in Malaysia and and then I realized they were all doing their laundry in this water, and I was like, oh, fuck, I'm going to get sick. That's because <laughs> Scarlet Fever's going around my kid's school. Um, <clears throat> but yeah, Scarlet Fever? Exactly. What year is this? Well, um, now because kids aren't getting inoculated anymore by their parents. Yep, so all they're all getting Scarlet Fever. Idiots. Um, so, so wait, I'm, I, now I'm doing exactly what people hate about my podcast. Hummingbird inside the fucking room. Did you see that? Did he come in? Hummingbird just flew into the room. Um. I'm I'm starting like 19 different stories with you, and I'm never letting you finish any of them. So no, okay, so, so I asked my wife to marry me, and they yeah. and they Milton Burrow. That's it. And then oh well, this then we walked to uh, this French restaurant, this great French restaurant in New York, and uh, had a great meal. And she had the ring, and she just kept looking at the ring. And then I took her to a Broadway show, and during the show, she's looking at the ring. And then we went to this was on her birthday, December 23rd. So then we went to the uh, St. Regis Hotel. There's this bar called the King Cole Room. Do you know yeah. that room? No. It's this classic old... Yes, I do. Yes, I do. Yes, I do. right on Central Park South. Yep. And uh, this big room, and we always go there, and we meet up with all her friends on, on uh, her birthday. So we go there, we have a drink, and all her friends are there, and her, her friend who introduced us was there. And I said, do you remember what I said to you the night that I met Aaron? And she goes, no. I go, the thing about getting married, and she's like, no. And I was like, you fucking bitch. <laughs> she forgot. I, I expected her to go, you told me that night you were going to marry yeah. her. Anyway, so, so we had a drink, and then it started snowing, so we went across the street to Central Park, and we got into a carriage and did a carriage ride through Central Park in the snow. And I threw a move on her, and I got shot down. <laughs> had the blanket on top of us. Really? Yeah, she didn't. <laughs> what? Um. Okay, so now let's go back and finish Stern. So Stern, so then I go on, and he, he couldn't have been sweeter, more supportive. I felt, you know, I felt like there was a magic. There was just, you know, I, I'd done stand, like, you know, you go on the road, and you do three, four, five radio interviews a week when you're on the road, and it's with every kind of disc jockey. And so you do that for enough years, you get to be really good at just connecting. You just, yeah. you look him in the eye, and you go for the ride. If this guy's going to suck, I'm taking over the interview. If he's good, then we can just riff, and I don't have to think. If he, you know, if he wants to be one of these setup guys, fine. I'll do some chunks. So you get really good at adjusting. So when I sat down with Stern, I was just like, I'm just looking at him. Whatever he does, I'm just going to be truthful. I'm yeah. not going to. One thing I learned watching Stern is don't deflect. If he asks you a question, answer it honestly. That's all you got to do. He doesn't turn on people unless they're not giving him anything. Like if you're just like ah, I don't, yeah, I don't want to talk about that. Or you know, come on, Howard. That's yeah. Then you get attacked. So I just so I let it out, and some good stories came out. And then he started bringing me in 
um, every couple weeks and then once a week. And then he brought me in for like a whole week straight every day because it came down to basically start out with like a dozen comics, Stan Hope. And I, I forget all the guys that were coming in, but it came down to me and Artie. And, uh, so then it was like this head to head competition and it wasn't stated. It was not a contest for the chair, but it was very obvious that that's what was happening. And so it was talked about. And then he got it, and I was like, I can't compete with a guy that can come in and tell hooker stories and coke stories and gambling stories. And he was just perfect. Artie's, Artie's, uh, Artie's stories, I remember being in cars, driving, going like, like I, I feel like I haven't fucking lived. Right. Like he's got stories that are like, I mean, I guess with them come, you know, the hiccups with that he's had in his life. But yeah. Mother, I mean, and I don't know if I'd want those hiccups, but have you been on Stern? No, I never been you on Stern. You kill on Stern. No, I, I, I'm in a weird place in my life where I feel like all I do is deflect. <laughs> but right. like, if you do Stern, I was like, I remember that at one point, um, they were gonna, they were talking about we did like a pre-interview, I think, with Will. Yeah, or, or, and I sent right. Will some things, and I, and I, I forget who said it, but they were like, if you do Stern, you know, you gotta just be 100 percent honest about everything. And I was yeah. like, I was like, I could do that. I could do that. I mean, yeah. I'm not afraid. Here's the thing: I'm not afraid of the truth. With me, I'm afraid of what that does to other people. Yeah, like I don't like I don't like just in a weird fucking place with like like I don't I'm I when I wrote the book I was like 100 percent honest about fucking everything and and I had a buddy call today and he was like, "Can you send me a copy?" I was like, "Sure." He was like, "I just want to know what I need to be prepared for," and I was like, "Yeah, sorry." <laughs> Is he in it? Oh yeah. Oh yeah, and he's one of the most fascinating fucking human beings in the world. But like, I mean, me and you can be honest about our lives because we make money off of being honest. Yeah, a lot of people that don't aren't, aren't like us. Oh yeah, and there are a lot of comedians who aren't honest. Yeah, who, who live a very different life off stage and then on stage, and 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 aren't comfortable with the truth. And and I I'm not comfortable with revealing their lies. I, I'm not. It's I'm, I'm I'm talking in circles, but like no, I know what you're saying. Like my um. A woman who's extremely close to me, who has been sort of my spiritual mentor my whole life, is gay and lives with a woman for the last 20 years. And in my book, I talk about her and her strength and with the example she set and her being gay. And uh, I called her just to go through a couple facts because I called anybody that was in the book and make sure that the facts that. were right. And, she, and so I actually had emailed her the, the chapter that she was in. And she was Jesus like Christ, flabbergasted. She that. She's like, I'm not, I'm not a lesbian. She's like, you know, I, uh, I'm, I'm, I love who I love. It's just whoever. It's not, you know. I used to date guys, and and I was like, all right, took it out. Really? Yeah. Thank God I didn't put it out there. Yeah. Because she's one of the closest people in the world to me. Yeah. That 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 would. Uh... I mean, yeah, my, my buddy Mock kidnapped a couple girls one time, and and uh, and then we took over a town in uh, in Pennsylvania, and uh, and I, it, it's like, look, like he, I, I just talk, I talked to him on the phone for like fucking an hour, and I was like, listen, I, I'm very real about all that. And he's like, I don't give a fuck. He's like, you know what? I, I decided last night I'm quitting my job. I'm moving to Vegas. I'm going to pursue poker professionally. <laughs> I was like, that's the fucking guy in the book. That's yeah. who you really are. You're yeah. not this corporate so guy. So you freed a lot of people from their conventional lives with this yeah, book. Yeah, hopefully. 
Everybody had to quit their jobs and get new identities after this book. <laughs> I was like, fucking, I, I was signing books yesterday because, uh, you know, I, I sell pre-orders. I sold pre-orders at my shows. Mm-hmm. So I like, I'm signing books and my wife's like, wait, you don't you know her? And I was like, who? She's like, Allison Williams. It's Allison Shamblin. And I was like, yeah. And I'm like, I'm like oh, she's in the book. Oh, fuck. She bought a book. <laughs> oh, shit. Like, I was like, hey, Allison, you're on page 43. I think I'm pretty respectful. I talk about her not fucking me. So like that, like and so badge of honor among women that she had good morals. Her morals were intact, and that's why I moved to her best friend Jenny Powers, who's in the book, who bought a book also. Who so did have sex with you? No, didn't either. Didn't either. Neither of them did. And the woman that the girl that did, I didn't use her name. Thank fucking god. Yeah. But uh, oh, so you didn't change names? Nope. Dude, are you crazy? I know. Anything edgy, I changed the names on, and I blacked out people's faces and pictures if yeah, I didn't I'm, have explicit. I'm going to have anxiety about this right now. Who's your publisher? St. Martin's. So it's a legitimate book, legitimate. and they didn't go through it and say they did with the lawyer, and they said the names are fine. Yeah, Will then Smith, you're fine. Will Smith's in there. It's like I'm not going to get sued. I just losing friends, right? You know, like I like people just going. I mean, it's not like we all hang out now anyway, but. I just feel, my I feel, relatives are very Irish Catholic, and most of them did not mention the book. They read it, but they didn't bring it up to me. Like it was yeah. not. I got that same fucking table right there. What restoration hardware? That side table. Where? This thing? Yeah. Really? I have no idea. They brought it with the man cave. Right. Okay. So, um, yeah, your book came out. You were one of the reasons I wrote a book. Get out of here! Yeah, I, you, I've told you this. I I, got, I bought your book and you and you were talking about it on your podcast. You're like, I use Dragon Dictate. It really helped oh, me get right. started. That's right. And I was like, Yeah, you like, did tell me that. I've been waiting for this my whole fucking life. I bought it's the it. Greatest, I started right? Started the book in Hawaii. Yeah. And I was like, I'm gonna write a fucking book. And yeah. I wrote the first story I wrote was when I fought a bear, and I wrote that down in the book. And I was like, But then I did it. With you Dragon, wrote it or you did Dragon, I did Dictate. Dragon Dictate? Then I sent it to my wife. She's like, I can't understand any of this. Were you drunk last night? I was like, Yeah, I was so drunk. I actually lost a tooth that night. I woke up without a tooth, and I was like, "What happened?" And so, and so I uh, wait. Explain what it is to people that don't know. Dragon Dictate is a headset that had a real long cord. You plug it into your your um, computer with the program, and it would translate what you wrote, what you said, into words on the paper. So you could just because let's be honest, our books are a collection of stories. Yeah. So you just I and I could do one better. Is I would plug. I would talk into a handheld uh, cassette recorder. That way, I have an office, and I and there's this park across the street, and I would walk around the park, and I would set out, and I'd be like, all right, I'm going to go tell the story about getting into the fight in Boston. And then I'd walk around that park for 15, 20 minutes and talk the story out, and there's only one recorder that's compatible with Dragon Dictate. And then I would plug it into my computer, and it would download all those words right uh-huh. into it. And, you know, you know, spell check, grammar check, and boom, you got because writing is all about having a big, ugly first draft. It doesn't matter yes. how bad it is. Writing is rewriting. You're going to rewrite it twelve fucking times. It's that first. It's that first draft that's hard to get. So now you got it. You got that first draft. Yeah, yeah. It was. It's. Uh, that was the best thing. And then and so I did. I wrote like I wrote like four chapters like that. And I was like, this is great. And then. And then my wife was like, all right, you need to go through now and write those because the yeah. words are there and your ideas are there and that gives you the confidence to start editing. And then I edited through and then I sold a book through that and I was like, oh, fuck, I sold a book. And then I, I tried. I you mean a, as a proposal? As a proposal, right. Yeah. And then, and then I, tried, I tried selling um, 
I tried writing the rest of the book with Dragon Dictate, but it didn't really. Uh, it didn't. I, I ended up bailing on it after a while because I then found that my compa- the, I had an upgrade and it wasn't compatible, yeah. and I needed a new mic. And I was like, "Motherfucker, I'll just start writing." Yeah. So, um, but you were the fir- one of the first people, but you you released yours online. No, I did both. I had uh, Simon Schuster was the publisher, so yeah. we we put it out in a hardcover, and at the same time, we put it out as a you know ebook on. Well, but what I did was, when you read the ebook on your iPad, you can click on any of the, uh, the uh, throughout it. I made videos, so anytime my book was a collection of letters and behavior reports, my mom had, had saved my whole life yeah. when I was in trouble. So in the book, I have them, but instead of just reading them, you tap it, and it launches a video, and I would have like Andy Dick, Zach Galifianakis. I had all these different comedians playing the professors that were writing the notes. Yeah. So they would, they would sit there with like a pen and pretend they were writing, and they'd say it out loud. So it was, uh, oh, and not yeah, too many yeah, people yeah. had done that before, where it was like interactive in the ebook. Now, when, how long, when did you start your podcast? Um, you were the first generation. six years ago. Six, six years, years ago. ago? Yeah. Holy and, shit. Yeah, I've been doing the radio show about seven years. So after a year, I started doing the podcast. And I started out one a week, and then after about a year, I went to two a week. What's the best radio show you've done on that? The best interview I've done on yeah. my podcast? No, on your on your podcast and on your radio show. Because I, I remember listening to one with Andy Dick that was pretty fucking awesome. The Andy Dick ones are always, always fantastic. He is just my favorite. And uh, I got in a lot of trouble with him once because... He came on, and, and he was in a bad way, and he started talking about Stern because Stern had just canceled his show, which was on Sirius XM, and then he had called in to try to talk to uh, somebody else who was newly sober, and uh, I think it was Charlie Sheen, as a matter of fact, and uh, Howard kind of let him through and then hung up on him, you know, said, you know, you're really in bad shape if Andy Dick is calling in to give you advice about sobriety. So Andy got, got on my podcast and started going, fuck Howard Stern, that fucking hook-nosed Jew bastard. Oh, yeah, that's right. And said a lot of really anti-Semitic one. stuff, and Howard got irate. God, it's was, so funny. I forgot Howard was Jewish. Right. So but that funny. was a running thing on the show. Is one of the whack packers used to call him a hook nosed Jew bastard. I think it was yeah. Yucko the Clown, and so it became kind of a moniker that a lot of people would say as a joke. But Andy was saying it, but it it se- didn't seem like as funny when he said it. Yeah, and um, and I did a poor job of moderating it and sort of bringing him down or calling him on it. And so when Howard played the clips back. It's, oh, that's I where was I listened laughing. to it. I listened to it on Howard's show. Yeah. He was playing your clips. Right. Ah, that's where I remember. And I'm laughing it. at it just because it's Andy Dick being Andy Dick. Yeah. And as a as a as a host on Sirius XM on Howard's channel, I feel like you just keep giving a guy rope. You know, you try to create a train wreck, which I felt bad about on two levels. One is Andy's a friend, and I should have protected him. Yeah. And secondly, he was hurtful to Howard because. I wasn't stepping in and defending him. Yeah. So it's one of those things that it was the biggest thing I've ever learned in radio. It's like, you know, there is a point where you have to be responsible and not just make it uh, because the way it's heard and perceived is very different sometimes than what's happening in the room. Yeah. Yeah. I've had, I've run into that in my podcast where I'm like, I'm like, I'm, I'm, I'm laughing pretty hard. Yeah. Is this the wrong reason to be laughing? Right. No. Um, now, okay. What about, um, on your podcast, what's the favorite one you've done on your podcast? Um, I did one with Nick Kroll, 
where we were talking about there was a girl in high school that <laughs> I was like a freshman in high school, and I was at this kid's house, and he was a really wealthy kid, and he had a, and we were drinking schnapps, and he had a younger sister who was probably at least a year, maybe two years younger. Yeah. And so I went in the next room and I started fooling around with her, and uh, and I fingered her, but like I went, I reached down her pants. And uh, you know how it is when at that age you don't really even take the pants off. You just yeah. all you want to do is get your finger inside to say you did it. Yeah. And uh, like the idea that you're that the that you're satisfying her is not even part of the equation. <laughs> it's literally just can I put my finger in her vagina and then tell my friends I did. It's like so I got my I got my hand down there and I get like carpal tunnel of trying to get my finger in and I get my finger in the hole and I'm like yeah and then. And then I leave his house later, and I and I smell my finger, and it smells like human shit. And I realized I I went past the vagina, and I fingered her asshole. And it was the first time she'd been fingered because she was probably thirteen, and I and I fucked her up for life because you know she thought that's normal. She didn't know that that's not what's supposed to be. That is quo. Wait, wrong hole. And now every other guy's like wrong hole. Right, right. You freak, get your finger out of that hole. It's the asshole. <laughs> and so he starts, and we went to the same high school, which is why the story came up. And I swear to God, for 30 minutes, we were just riffing about what the rest of her life was like. And I, <laughs> for three days, my ribs hurt from laughing so hard. Really? It was just, and I always do a best of at the end of the year where I, I give awards for the best podcast, the best this. Yeah. And that, that one took the best podcast. And then Andy Kindler, was the other was the other best of he's have you had him on no i talked to him on uh twitter uh about doing it and our schedules just haven't lined he's up he's the greatest he's I, i've always liked watching he's him He's really really great yeah i get a kick out of those guys i think uh guys like kindler you always every comic absolutely runs in the room to go watch yeah uh dana gould was someone i really wanted to see live and he hadn't been doing stand-up in forever and then i got to see him yeah but yeah kindler makes me laugh hard as shit so hard because it's so honest. It's completely honest, and it's yeah. and it's from a comedian's point of view. All the terminology and the concepts are all that only a, only a comic could understand what he's really talking about. So, what what got you into you you took uh, the same path Louis took in some ways, and that is you got out of doing the road and started making television and writing for television, and then executive producing television, and then show running television, and now I'm kind of curious to see what you're doing now, but. Well, actually, Louis got me my first writing job. Really? Yeah, when I was uh, I was on the road, and my son was about one, and I was missing so much because I was on the road so much. Don't tell and me. I'm on the phone phone with Louis complaining about it, and uh, he goes, "Well, you want to try writing for TV?" And I was like, "Fuck yeah!" And he was he was a producer on Cedric the Entertainer Presents, which was on Fox. It was a sketch show. Yeah, Cedric was brilliant. And he goes, "Well, let me see if there's any if I can get you something on here." And so they actually needed somebody to write the monologues. So he had me come in and meet with Cedric and show him some material. And I got hired. And I, I was the guy who wrote all of It's so ironic because here's this black guy from St. Louis who is, you know, really black. And I get hired to write his monologues with him. But we just clicked. I just had funny concepts that he liked. You know, like reality shows were just kind of taking off then. And, and yeah. I, I had this whole idea about how black guys... No matter how much they help the team, they're still the first ones kicked off the show. You know, they get voted off every yeah. time. And so so that was my first, right? And then from there, I went 
directly to the Man Show and then to Ellen DeGeneres. You worked on the Man Show? Yeah. When it was uh, Rogan and uh, Stanhope. I didn't know that. Yeah. And then I went to Ellen and then I went to Louis' sitcom. And and then I've just done a million shows since then. But it's always been like I spent half my time on the road and half my time writing on TV shows. And then, you know, now the podcasting and radio stuff comes up. So I, I have times where, you know, once you get a writing job, it's often like you're starting Monday. Yeah. And, you know, with stand-up, you've got three months booked out ahead of you. Yeah. So I would have times in the last few years where I'm in a city Thursday, Friday, Saturday, coming back on Sunday, writing Monday through Thursday, and doing two podcasts and a radio show during the week. And God it's a fucking grind. But then I have times where, you know, sometimes you got a few weeks off from the road and I'm not writing on something. And then thank God I've got the podcast to give me some some delusion that I'm still in the business. <laughs> That's it. I feel like that delusion is all I have. Sometimes the it's so funny. I'm on stage in Tampa last week, and I have this bit that I just that happened to me. But I uh, and I I was thinking about I'll tell you about it later. But uh, and I was in my, on my head. I'm trying to write it on stage. And sometimes like when I'm lost in a bit, this happened to me a lot when I was younger. I used to go like, how how would a tell get into this, or how would it? Where where would his angle like how would i remember right. the very first joke i ever wrote was uh uh i had touched a stewardess's face uh during a flight she was going to cut me off and i and i didn't want her to and i was very drunk so i put my finger on her lips and went shh and, <laughs> and so uh and i told it to patrice and patrice thought it was fucking hilarious and i remember patrice and i were sitting there and i was like i don't know how to write it as a joke and he's like i know how i'd write it as a joke i remember hearing him say that and he's like, I, I, for me, it wouldn't be a stewardess. It would be a cop. And I was like, okay. And he's like, if you make it a cop, it's that much bigger. And then I was like, how, how do I get into that? It's a weird story to tell. And in my head, I was like, how would a tell say it? And I literally, and, I, and I, this is what you do when you're younger, is I figured out a tell would write, you know what cops hate? When you touch their faces. Yeah. And so that was, my, that was how I got into it. And then right. I'd tell the story. Right. And so the other day, I'm on stage, and I'm telling this story. And I'm like, this is a, this is a Fitzsimmons story. It's a very honest, very uh, open, very real, uh, semi-sexual without talking about sex right. story about a relationship uh, with your wife and your kids show up. Wow. And I was like, this is a fucking Fitzsimmons story. Wow. And in my head, I was like, son of a bitch. Um, now, what, who were your influencers when you started? Oh, definitely a tell. Really? But, well, I started in Boston. So, I mean, if you forget about like the prior Carlin thing. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But if you talk about like firsthand influences, I mean, I started in Boston and uh, there were there, it was a closed community. There weren't comics that came in. Touring headliners didn't come to Boston because it was just it was like a union shop. There were guys that were big, <laughs> and they were the headliners. It was like Steve Sweeney and Don Gavin and Kenny Rogerson and Mike Donovan. There was like seven or eight guys that were the closers, and um, so because of that, and same with the features and the opener. So you had to really develop your own voice. Because if you were similar to one of the guys that was already working in Boston, you get your ass kicked. Yeah. So you really had to develop your own voice. And the guys that, that influenced me were like Don Gavin, who had this very – he had this delivery where he just threw away punchlines and tags. You know, like, I've you never know seen how, Don Gavin. You know, like, you know how Tom Cotter or Wendy Liebman, they'll do a joke, but then the punchline is – they step on the laugh with the punchline, yeah, kind of, 
And so that style was very uh, was very powerful in Boston. And a lot of guys had to fight to not sound too much like Don Gavin. And they, but they were joke writers, you know. In Boston, it was like it was edgy. It was really like self deprecating. It was very cop, you know, you know, talking about drunk driving, and uh, it was it was very male and so and aggressive, and which which served me well when I went to New York. And then when I got to New York. It was definitely a tell, a tell, a tell. Just like, you know, how do you not sound like this motherfucker when you see him consistently sure. killing in front of tough crowds night after night in a way that was so different? And and so, you know, his I, pacing was so fucking quick right, and fast. Right. And on top of it, I mean, he's, he's he he still to this day has my favorite CD ever, Skanks for the Memories. Right. I listen to that to this day and it's just so fucking quick and So dope. the other night I'm fucking this girl doggy style. Not how I planned it, it's just the way she passed out. Yeah. Anyway, a couple of McNuggets later, <laughs> Yeah. it's like, who the fuck <laughs> writes that? It's like... Yeah. And, and so... Who's next, Dave? The Eskimos? That's right, or as I call them, the Snow Mexicans. <laughs> like, it's just so fucking... Right. Yeah. Right. And so... uh and then, you know, I grew out of that, and then and then you hear Hicks, you know, and uh, or actually Hicks was before Attell. I think every comic was affected by Hicks, and especially yeah. in terms of um, not giving a, a fuck what the audience thinks, and and you know, at least putting putting that out there. It may not be obviously you don't really feel like that, but letting the audience feel like that they're not in control of the show and what happens that's, and the material that's really chosen. fucking deep about. Yeah. I, I I know that. I know that vibe, and I know that it changed. Because when I was in New York, I remember bombing was okay. Like, if you did not do great, that was fine. That happened to a lot of people all the time. You'd see someone fucking struggle, but that was part of the art form, was to watch them get in and out and have a good bomb line. Like, Norton was the best at, like, if he, a joke didn't work, what he followed that with was going to murder. Right. And And then I moved out to L.A., and I saw Dane, and I remember Dane just did not do anything other than amazing. Yeah. And I remember watching him go on stage going, this isn't like New York comedy. This is like this is like theater comedy. Yeah. Like there's no like like it was fun to watch Louie go in and fuck around on stage or or watch Dave kind of take it and it not go well and then to watch him get out of it. I, I to this day I have my favorite one of my favorite um uh stories of Attell is he says to a guy in the audience, "Sir, I'm trying to work up here. And he goes back to the joke, and the guy keeps talking. He goes, I'm going to give you one more chance, buddy, and then I'm coming after you. And he comes back, and the guy keeps talking. He goes, all right, you've had it. Now, when I get done with this joke, I'm coming after you. And he's da 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 The math leads. You're up, numbnuts. Here we go. And he starts. It's guys like you that make girl like that. Fuck guys like me. Place goes nuts. If I had two hands, I mean, just fucking a nut. But it was, yeah. like, more interactive. Yeah. And I saw Dane come out, and it was literally, like, he held the mic different than everyone. Yeah. He walked the stage different. He wore different clothes in New York comics. Yeah. It was a really interesting. Yeah. I think the way it tell the, the, the fascinating thing about Attell is exactly that is I think he's almost like, he's like air traffic controller. He's got his material he's doing. He's fucking with the crowd. He's playing to the back of the room and he's talking to himself yeah. and he's doing it all effortlessly. He's just, he's just spinning plates. And, and at the same time having this feeling that, he can't lose. Yeah. And with Dane, I think he started like a couple years after me in Boston. Yeah. And he came he was at that that same fortunate class of being able to have all these crowds that you could 
you could learn how to crush and feel like that's my baseline. Crushing's my baseline. As opposed to if you start in New York or L.A. and you're performing for eight people, seven of them are other comics, your baseline is, I have to look like this isn't the most painful thing in the world. (laughs) Yes. And then when you have an opportunity to crush, you don't because... It just feels like rarefied air. You don't you don't realize that it's that I can take this great crowd and actually take them even higher. You just go like, this is I'm doing way better than I'm used to doing. <laughs> yeah, you're right. That's so fucking interesting. But you started in the crushing rooms. Started in the crushing rooms. You know, and it was like rowdy, a lot of hecklers, but you know, the thing I learned was um from the Boston guys is that the crowd, if, I, if somebody heckles you, you got to remember that heckler is still on the away team. They're part of the them, and it's, it's you against them. And so you very carefully have to put a big red circle around this heckler and let everybody see that they're a problem, that they're a tumor that needs to be removed before you annihilate them. Because if you go after them on the first thing they say, the crowd goes like, hey, what the fuck, man? He paid money like us. We're just trying to watch a comedy show. But if you repeat what he says and do what Attell did and say one more thing, one more thing, and let them just build, give them rope, and then when you go after them, the crowd is on your side. I didn't do that right this past weekend. Oh, really? I didn't do that right. I jumped on somebody. I was in Irvine, and I jumped on somebody way too quick. It was two girls, and they were talking to each other, and I knew they were talking to each other, but no one else did. Yeah. And they were sitting in like that, not that first row, but the second, you know, the second row, but right up front, and I started, I said something, and I just jumped on them, and I, and I could feel everyone like tense up, and then yeah. I had to almost apologize and get them back on my team, yeah. and then I had to make them a part of the show. And I was like, fuck. Right, you right. Forget, I forget how little I know about stand-up. I wish I toured more with guys. I wish I, I wish there was a way to tour with guys so that, like, like I was saying to someone, I would want to work with Cat Williams, but I want Cat Williams to look at my sets. Yeah. Like, I'd like to have insight. I would like someone, what I want is a comedy audit. I want someone to sit, yeah. watch my set, and go, all right, I know you've been doing this for 15 That's years. That's what I want to do for a living. I really want to, because there's so many comics I think are really great, and I feel like because I've done it for 25 years, I would love to just go, run around and say, I will go watch you do five sets in L.A., and then we'll sit down. I'll take notes on each one, and I'll just give big picture notes, and I'll give you fucking taglines, and I would charge a fee and just do that. And well, I feel the, like I, I I'll could, tell you how much I'm willing to pay. How much? <laughs> I pay. I look at it. If I'm preparing for a special, I'd yeah. pay you. I would pay you what I made for that special. Okay. You don't have to pay me that much. But like, no, I got paid ten grand for my last special. <laughs> I would do it for five. I would do it for five grand. I'll give you five grand to do that. Okay. I'm gonna I'm gonna get ready for my next special. I'll give you five thousand dollars to sit and watch my hour five five times. Five times. Right. And I would. Fu- What's sad is you would get done my hour and you'd be like, you only got thirty minutes. <laughs> First of all, I got to give you twenty five hundred back because you've only got a half an hour. <laughs> I wanted, I wanted some. I so badly uh, want like, like I wanted someone to. And I just I missed the opportunity, but I wanted someone to watch that machine story when I told it on stage to figure out how to make it fucking shorter, right? Because it's so fucking long. Oh, and by the way, me saying that is no. It's I would also need the exact same thing for me. It's not that I know comedy no, yeah, so right. well. It's that. I just I just know that a fresh set of eyes and ears on the material 
from somebody who you just know has done it for a long time yeah. is going to allow you to pull whole sentences out to add a, a tagline, to add a transition, to say, you know what, just fucking get rid of this bit because it's not your style. Like, sometimes you have bits that aren't your style of comedy. Yeah. You, like sometimes you write, it, I, I'll write a joke that's like a setup punchline. And I go like, that's not what I do, but it occurred to me, and it gets laughs, and it starts to become part of your act, and you realize that shouldn't be in my act. I should be talking the way I talk. That is my biggest problem. Is I find that what I'm doing in my set is I'm doing 20 minutes up front. I, I, this is how my acts turned in. I do 20 minutes up front of just I, I've like anything with sex, anything with like uh, with uh, mostly just with sex or my wife or my kids up front. Then I tell the machine story for 12 minutes. Then they drop checks. Then I tell stories like fighting a bear, uh, I jumping out of a plane with Rachel Ray for the next 20 minutes, and then that's my set. And I and I feel like I don't know. Which one's better? And I don't know because there's this check drop and I have this big story that I have to tell. I don't know how to fucking break it up. And I don't know how I'd tell it in an hour. I, I, I don't know if, you know. So, and I feel like it's to, two totally different comics. Right. Like when I talk about sex, I'm talking very quickly off the head and right. not thinking. When I'm telling a story, it's a little more rehearsed and a little more, like a little more written. Yeah. Well, I think though you can have two different types, don't yeah. you? I think so, but I think so, but sometimes I wonder, am I doing that front part because there's an immediate payoff? Like, am I, I'm, I'm telling, like, you know, ultimately I'm theorize, like having theories about sex, and it's, and it's like, uh, I like, I don't even know. It, it, I, 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 this, this bit that I did that I thought was really brilliant, I don't, I don't even know if it's that good, to be honest with you, is the premise that no guy ever has sex with a woman for the first time. Every time a guy has sex with a woman for the first time, he's just using all the moves that worked on the chicks before us. Right. So it's not our fault if you don't like it. And right. then the joke is, if you don't like a finger in your ass, blame Kristen. She's the one that dug, dug it. <laughs> she and backed so, up into it. She was like, yeah, now I thought you guys all liked that. You don't yeah. like that? And so uh, and so that's the premise. And then it kind of expounds from there about like, I don't know. And then in my head, I'm like, this is a complete departure So when I from when I tell a story of like, like, uh, like in the second half, I'm like, when I was 22, I fought a bear. When I was 27, I fought a bear. And everyone's like, what the fuck? When I was 22, I got involved with the Russian mafia. I jumped out of a plane with Rachel Ray. I, uh, I, like, I, and so it's longer form stories. It's two totally different types of stand-up. So. I like that it's different. I think it's almost like changing gears as you're going faster. You know, you, you, it's a different set of skills. It's a different rhythm. I Very think that different. you really need a different rhythm at the beginning. Then I, I can't imagine walking on stage and just doing a story cold. Like Berbiglia, I watched him do it in Tampa. I, I, I think I watched Norton do it too. Yeah, and <laughs> and it was like it was like wow. You're What's it called? Sleepwalk. Sleepwalk. Sleepwalk with me. Right. Yeah. So. Uh, <laughs> and then yeah, it's just stories, and uh, you know Gaffigan. Yeah. Is the same way though. He'll tell stories, but he'll also just tell jokes. Yeah, I think you can mix it up, but I I think I think that there's a, I guess there's different facets that you can do up there, and maybe maybe mixing up jokes with with your style. Is I'm gonna fine. take you up. I'm gonna take you up on that. Let's I'm, do it. I'm being dead serious. All right. Um, what's uh, what are you working on now? I'm doing a series uh, for True TV. It's a thing about like middle aged guys, a talking head kind of show. Yeah. But I'm gonna do 12 episodes of that, filming in June. And it's, I don't know when it comes out, but it's just like rageful middle-aged guys in midlife crises talking now, about are you, life. Are you, are you ever nervous about where is the next job coming from? Yes. 
but do you seem like someone who's worked since you were fucking 22 in this business? I've been extremely fortunate, and it's like, I guess the superstitious part of me feels like that that means I'm due to have it all end immediately. <laughs> and then, you know, when you feel like you're getting old, and, and you feel like, you know, people don't work after a certain age in this town and you just go is it this age is it next year's age is it the because oh. once things slow down they can just stop you know and yeah. and work so i've always kept scrambling to keep working because i'm afraid if i'm seen not working then people think you're the guy that's not working and nobody wants to give work to that guy what's the what is your like my wife believes in putting it out there right like what you want and like I've always said, I want a sitcom. I want a four-camera sitcom. Really? I very badly want a four... I, I really enjoy the process of uh, development, and I love the concept of going to one place every single day and yeah. and doing a TV show and knowing the camera guys and getting to and doing it for five years. I don't... Here's I'm, I'm telling you, my, this is my... I, I put this out there hardcore. My goal is to... Keep, always do stand-up. Always do Travel Channel. Work at Travel Channel for 20 fucking years. Have Trip Flip go on for 20. It is the greatest job in the world. I never want that job to end for the rest of my life. I want to write another book, but I want to write fiction. I want to I want to kind of morph into what what James Patterson does, kind of. Jesus Christ. Uh, and then, and then I've I, never heard anybody say that before. And then I want to do... What do you mean? Like have a bunch of ghostwriters? You're writing four a year? No. No. Uh, actually, no. I'm... I mean, I wouldn't mind that because writing a book was so hard. No, uh, I, I can't explain. You know, it. he doesn't write most of his own books. Yeah, I know, but I'm using him as an example for the way he does his show, his his books. Uh, and I'll, I'll explain to Badly? you badly. No, I'll explain to you off air. But I'll, I'll I, 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 I misspoke, but I, I spoke correctly. But I misspoke because you're not going to understand what I'm saying, and I have to explain it to you. But I can't explain it to you on the podcast. Okay. Everyone's going to then everyone might think it's a bad idea, and I won't have time to read. Got it. it. Got so, it. So, um. Uh, and then I I want to uh, I want to sit, sit four camera sitcom. Well, it sounds like you're putting a lot of stuff out into the universe, which is good. You know, <laughs> something's got to something's got to. But it, but that that's what's funny though is that our careers are not like it used to be. You're Nipsey Russell. You're a fucking game show panelist. That's your career. You yeah. could do just that, or you're just a stand up. Or you know, now it's like we all have to fucking do a podcast. Do a cable show, develop sitcoms, and you constantly be developing sitcoms. Maybe you sell it, you sell an idea every two or three years, and you develop that. Yep. And then we got to be doing stand up on Letterman, and we have to be um, doing you know, an hour special. Yeah, doing a one hour special, writing a book. It's it's all like we have to keep putting shit. And I hate the word brand, but like it really is. You have to become like a cult of personality in some way. I hate that too. I hate it's that so, so much. much. Work. Oh, digital media on top of it. It's just relentless, and you feel like, is this adding up to something? And then you go on the road, and you, you have some good sellouts, and you go like, oh, I guess it is adding up to something. But you also realize that if you don't keep feeding that machine in a year or two, those people are not coming back to see you. It's fucking, I look at my podcast numbers, and I, if I don't release a podcast in like every single week, I can see a dip in the numbers of downloads for the next one. I, the, the, right. People just start going, oh, are you, I guess you stopped. Right. I'm like, no, I, I was in fucking Brazil. Right. Like, I couldn't upload anything. And then I started doing doubles, and I look at my daily average starts spiking, and I'm like, fucking doubles it is. I yeah. guess I'll be doing doubles. I'm going to, I'd love to, if I was smart, I would have done what Bill Burr did and just done one by myself. So I'd I just know. go, hey guys, it's Bert. Welcome back. The guest booking is the worst part of it. It's the worst, but it's the best because 
I, for me, because I have a little bit of social anxiety, so I don't. I would never talk to you like this at a club. I would never yeah. get to ask you all the shit I want to ask you at a club. Or if I did, I would be drunk and you'd be like, oh, here we go. No, I don't meeting. mean the interview. I'm talking about the actual getting the guest booked. Guest booking is a nightmare. That is a nightmare. But but if I didn't have guests, I would never get to talk to right. you or Jen Kirkman. Uninterrupted. Or, yeah. It's not, not five-second snippets interrupted by a guy who did a, who did a guest spot on your show five years ago that now wants to dominate the conversation. It's like we actually have a real serious talk. It's like what a gift that is yeah. with the people you most want to. You invite the people you find the most compelling and interesting and funny, and you sit down and have a fucking talk with them. It's great. I remember when I first did your podcast, I was nervous because I didn't really know you. And I remember I was standing in your parking lot and I was in my head, I had a fucking million things going on. I was like, well, oh my God, what's this going to be about? Like, well, probably not probably like we were stern, but that same kind of thought process. Yeah. I remember standing out front and Rogan called. And I was like, that's odd. Like, and he just called and I picked up the phone. I was like, hey, he's like, hey, I'm in Hawaii. I heard you doing Greg's podcast. I was like, yeah. He's like, he's a fucking great guy. You're going to have a fucking blast. I was like, really? He was like, you're going to have so much fun. Call me when you get done. And I hung up and I was like, oh. Wow, that's yeah. so cool. Yeah, Rogan's, Rogan's a different, he's a different. He is a. He's one of the few people in this world that I won't speak for. Like people go, hey, what do you think Joe would think? I go, I have no fucking idea. Yeah. I can't tell you. I, I don't know what he would think. And, you know, and you have conversations with him on this three-hour podcast. And it's like, I mean, Corolla is similar. Like, they've always got a point of view that they can back up. And can back up and can back up and can have an opinion on. And you just go like, wow, this guy is consistently, you know, thoughtful about anything. Yeah. Yeah, I'm not. I'm- I mean, I guess Corolla is a little more predictable. But in terms of specific premises for things, you know, whether you talk about a ceiling fan or, or whether you talk about, um, you know, uh, freight you know, freight liners, like he'll have information and an opinion on it. Yeah. What would be your dream tour if you go on tour with four dudes, three three other dudes with you? Who would be on the tour? Yeah. Well, you know what would be great? I mean, we have the same agent, right? You're with uh, Justin? No. Oh. Who no. are you with? Heidi. At UTA? Yeah. Oh. Well, I would like to get guys like us that are in the same vein, you know, big podcasters, you know, like me, you, um... Uh, well, Rogan would be, you know, a dream, but like Ari Shafir. Yeah. Um, uh, Joey's with Justin. Joey Diaz would be great. Like guys like that, because I feel like we have a lot of similar listeners, but you also have different ones. But if we were to reach out and really make it a podcast tour and we did like medium sized venues, say like, you know, 1200 seats, thousand seats, and we did one, you know, a different city, but like a bus tour where you yeah. do like you know minneapolis one night and then you get to i mean i can't map it out but like cities that are a couple hours apart Fuck so you can sleep yes. late get to the next city in time to have a good dinner you know hang out after the show like that and watch each other's sets give each other notes do podcasts as we went along the way that would be awesome and and everyone would grow exponentially i'll do it i'll right. fucking scrap all my dates for the rest of the year you give me any fucking month i'll do it in a heartbeat we should do it I, do, I, do you realize how much ground we Brian Callen. Holy God, this would be a fucking monster. Yeah. Um, what's, uh, you know, what's only, the only thing holding us back is agents. Right. It's, it's that, is that like, 
We tried doing something one well, time. Well, because an agent will want to produce it, which you want. You want somebody to produce it, but then yeah. if it's not your agent, then it's... Uh, I'll talk to Heidi. I'll tell her I'll just do it. Heidi will be in. I'm in. You guys... Uh, listen, Maybe I'm, Justin can, can do it. I'm totally in. What's uh? What I was thinking, What I, my, my uh, little pipe dream was, is I would like to do a podcast cruise where we're, well, we get a cruise ship out of like Encinitos or something, take it down to Mexico for three days, and you have... Like one night's a big live show with everyone going on. You could probably do two nights live shows, different group guys. You could do Q and A's in the afternoon. You could do live podcasts all throughout the cruise ship. You could have gambling, drinking, and you get all podcast fans to come out to L.A. I love it. I'd do it in a heartbeat. Yeah, Jesse Thorne. You know Jesse Thorne? Girl? No, it's a guy. He's literally the original podcaster. He started really? doing it. He had an NPR show, but he was like in college doing NPR and. And he's got a couple big podcasts and a show on NPR. And um, he's doing a thing uh, out of Miami, but it's comedians, bands. And uh, so it's a similar idea. He'd be a good guy to talk to about how to put it together. I I, I believe in like those like I heard Kid Rock had one and I was like, fuck, I could do that. Because mm. like, I like to party, so I like to cr- I like a cruise. Yeah, I would do that in a heartbeat. I tried to get Travel Channel to do one with all of the Travel Channel talent. Yeah. Do a Travel Channel cruise. And they were like, eh, it would be really hard to get everyone uh, everyone's schedules aligned. Well, it's tough because when do you do it? If you do it during the summer, it's hot as shit and people are on vacation. Yeah. If you do it in the fall, people's kids are in school. Yeah. It's really hard. It's a real commitment to do that. But I think it's... I think it's doable. You know, the LA Podcast Festival has done really well. Yeah, and that's, people and travel that's, for that. that. That's um, that's uh, uh, Graham, right? Right, Graham Elwood. Yeah, um, yeah. I've never done the podcast festival, but I'm I don't I'm not a good po- live podcaster. No, no. Nah. I mean, because I end up I end up going towards material, right? Or going towards getting the laugh. I'm not just I can't just sit up there. Vulnerable. Yeah, it's hard. It's hard to not play to the crowd that's sitting right there. Yeah, I, like I don't mind. I don't mind doing Doug Loves Movies. And Joey's podcast is really fun to do live. Yeah. Because Joey just fucking rants for an hour, and you just sit back and don't say a fucking thing. Uh-huh. Um, uh, and then I did someone else's that I, that I said was a really amazing live podcast. I forget who it was. But, uh, but yeah, I'll, I'll, let's do that. I'm gonna, I'll send an email to you, Ari, Joey, Tom Segura, like all those dudes that are like big podcasters that have all big... We could do a tour, get a, one tour You've got to make sure that everybody's a draw. Because concepts don't sell tours, yeah. individuals sell tickets. You, if you, you got to be. It's got to be somebody. If we're gonna have four guys and a thousand seats, you got to know that each guy is, each guy can pull two hundred fifty people in a night to a place. Otherwise, yeah. it's a bust. These tours can hemorrhage money. Yeah, and so, you want to and you want to make sure they're they're similar two hundred fifty, but not the exact same two hundred fifty. Exactly. Yeah, yeah. And the problem is with that is that most podcasters are white men from la yeah it's hard to get any diversity where you i mean if you got aisha taylor it'd be fantastic because she's probably got a slightly different demographic she has to right yeah or you know jay moore has got the sports demographic so you and him together would be great yeah that'd be a great tour and then maybe uh kevin smith kevin smith would be he just came on my podcast two days ago really is he is he directing the new batman versus superman i think part of it Shut up. Something like that. I know he's got a new movie. I can't remember if it's that or it's... No, he's doing something that's like... Uh, it's an anti-Christmas. There's the, there's some f- mythic figure in like Scandinavia who comes in and eats children the uh, night before Christmas. Oh, my God. I just... Um, uh, yeah. 
And so he's oh he's doing just, something. Where did I just hear about this? Uh, yeah, there's an anti. I, I, I just heard about this, right? And I ended up googling it and sitting online all night long, like everything I could read about this character. Yeah, it's kind of interesting. It's um, and so it's like a only an alien looking thing. Yeah. So he's doing that, and and you know his podcast. He's got so many podcasts under his company. It's crazy. Are, are you with a network? Well, yeah. I mean, I'm with Podcast One, which I don't know if you call that a network. They sell ads for our shows. It's me and Corolla. Is that like Courtside, Courtside Media? Right. It's the same company. Yeah. And so they bring us all our ads, and uh, but but it's not it's not like I don't know. I mean, I guess that's a family. I like to think I'm independent, but they do the sales for me. But I guess in a sense, I am part of the, the, the conglomerate. Yeah. So wait, you never said what your thing was, your, what you wanted out of life to put in the universe Oh, for you. I wanted to host a late night talk show my whole life. Really? Yeah, I want because I love writing jokes, showing up, rolling up my sleeves, look at the news, let's all write jokes. You have a very unique interview style. And I'd like to interview people. I would love to interview people every night. I would like to do remote segments. Every part of being a late night host, I would love to do. And you and you have very fair boundaries and very fair not boundaries is the wrong word. Very fair views of the world. Like and I never forget it. You said to me on the last podcast we did, you went, you said, uh, and I've quoted you on this. Uh, you grew up in the South. Have you ever said the N word? And I went, I went. Uh, and you went, that's a yes. Now, here, and then you said, there's a difference between saying it and using it. Right. And, I, and I'd never heard that. I mean, I'd grown up around people my whole life who had said the N-word, and I'd never heard there's a difference between saying it and using it. And you went on to explain that, and I was like, oh, this is a guy that's actually fucking thought this through. This yeah. isn't just some crack fucking <laughs> right. pot th- theory. This is like, right. you might have written this down into a book one time. Right. Well, I think that, um, you know, race, if you think about the topics that guys like us go into... Yeah. It's the stuff that people don't talk about, and you better have some fucking good thoughts on it. Because if you're going to talk about race and homosexuality or um, age or any anything that's a an ist, you know, it's like you got to bring something to the table. Otherwise, it's going to sound really trite. And so, I think it's an it's an exploration of the things that people won't talk about. And it's a great opportunity, and it's where I think you mine some of the best comedy. Yeah. So. Um, you know, I, I think it's fascinating to find out what people think about race. You take for granted, like this whole idea that you cloak it in, like everything that happened with um, Donald uh, Sterling. Sterling. It's just interesting because he didn't do anything wrong. Uh, I mean, what he thought he had, you know, the thought police would say it was improper thinking, yeah. but he didn't ban anybody from playing on the team. He didn't fire anybody for being on the team. He expressed disgusting thoughts. But they're disgusting to people that are disgusted by them. I mean, they. they, so what? I mean, the fact that we vilified him to the point where he is like the number one pariah in America. How about these fucking guys that are that have hedge funds that are literally stripping people of their health benefits and their pension funds because they need the corporate earnings to be higher? I mean, that's fucking evil. And, yeah. and I don't care if that guy says the N-word or not. He is profoundly affecting the fabric of society and that goes unchecked yeah that's very it's it's uh i i listened to the donald sterling thing and i was like i can't believe i can't believe he didn't know he was getting tape recorded right like she seems so baity yeah like she is literally and it's not like he left it on a voicemail where he knew it like mel gibson you're like really 
Yeah. Huh. You didn't like I so funny. I've gotten to a place the other to, the other week, and some kid came up to me and started asking me about stuff I don't so, something I didn't want to talk about. And you could tell, and he's like, "Hey, man, I'm not tape recording you." Yeah. And I was like, "That's out there now." Yeah. Right. And but also, I think it's like um, for Donald Sterling, it just occurs to me like, why are you talking? She is a fuck piece. She's a dumb woman who's way too young for you. Yeah. Who is obviously a gold digger. You know. All of that. Yeah. You're an intelligent man who has worked his way to the top of the of the food chain economically. You don't know that those kind of conversations are to be held in your private clubs You're amongst other reptilian He's a billionaires. Lawyer. Yeah. He's a lawyer. Why are you talking this way in front of this woman? Who is of color. Right. That's the other part that's like, she's also questionably not white. Right, like, it, like uh, that blew me away. I, yeah. I, I, I don't say a fucking thing to anyone on the phone these days. Yeah, I'll say. And I, I, first, my first thought was just live your life like you're always being recorded. And then I was like, no, 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 no. How about live your life like a good person? Yeah, <laughs> right. Like, just, how about just always hedge that bet? Just be a good person. Yeah, yeah. I think it's it's. You wonder with the whole political correctness and and you know it's 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 really about. You know, semantics and controlling what sounds come out of your mouth. Is that good or bad? And, and, but it, you wonder is part of it definitely is like what you just said. It makes you say, let me live a good life. But then the other part of it is I have to live in an ordered way, the way society is telling me to live. And it's not one or the other, it's a little bit of both. Yeah. Well, it's like, it's like we got into a conversation in my backyard uh, with a black dude who was saying the M word a lot and, but he didn't, he didn't, this is going to sound He didn't, he, he doesn't sound black. Right. He sounds white. <laughs> and so I, it just, and I was like, can you just say that in my head? I'm thinking if my neighbors are listening, yeah, then what's stopping them from recording this and what's stopping anyone from, how do I prove that he's black? Uh-huh. Like, and I was like, motherfucker, can you just sound a little blacker? Yeah. Like, but it, it, it didn't, uh, no, I'm yeah, I need you to validate this. Do you have a rubber stamp? Yeah. Um, I'm gonna, I will talk to you all day, so I'll, I'm going to wrap this up because I literally will talk to you nonstop. I have one question. Who makes the friends in your relationship, your wife or you? And then who keeps them? I make them. She, she keep. She solidifies them. You know, I am much more of like the, uh, I think, because I'm out in the world more, I guess I bring more. New people. Actually, no, that's not true. I, I double back on that. She brings in people from the school world. Yeah. I bring in people from entertainment and otherwise, but I, not really entertainment, but just guys like college friends that I maintain relationships with. But then people meet her and she's so incredibly um, connected when she talks and caring and she remembers everything about she oh, knows, has your kids she knows everyone's name at school right and does she know the kids names at school too oh yeah but she oh, cares yeah she really is a caring person who's a listener and so when people are around her they fall in love with her and she's the reason why they probably hang out with us more my wife my wife brings in the friends yeah i'm the closer though you're the closer yeah yeah. I'm the reason they stick around. Now, what's your move? Because you got your stories you do on stage. All of us have stories that if a new friend, <laughs> you know that I can launch. I can launch this story. They never heard it. I'm going to kill. Uh, I. Uh, you don't use the ones from your acts. No, 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 not. You don't do remotely. the I fought a bear with new no, parents. No. no. Uh, I, my move usually is 
I allow our new friends the um, opportunity to be a complete and total fuck up around their spouses, and there's no repercussions. I like it. So like, uh, so like, so like, you make them feel like this is a fractured, dysfunctional environment where we all accept each other. We were at a pool party, and the guy, uh, the this guy came back. I'm in I'm in the back pool house room of our friends. And uh, I'm getting a beer, and he comes back. He's like, I was told to see you. I go about, and he goes, I wanted to get high. I was like, oh, I don't, I don't have marijuana. And he goes, no, I have it, but I, I was told that you, I needed to get high with you. I was like, oh, I don't really even smoke marijuana. And he goes, well, I don't know why they sent me in here then. And then my wife came in, and she was like, oh, you found Bert. And I was like, wait, what are you doing? She's like, well, he wants to get high, and if, if he does it around other people, they're going to fucking say something. But if he does it around you, then it's okay with everyone yeah. that he got high. And I go, but I'm not getting high. And she goes, yeah. oh, no, I told him that. And he goes, oh, I don't think I understood the whole conversation. I'm like, this is fucking awkward. <laughs> like, when we go to children's <laughs> parties, someone will break out the booze, and they'll fr- go to me first and be like, hey, take a shot. And I'll be like, yeah. oh, I-, I remember one time I had to drive to Ontario. I was like, I can't. I'm... Driving to Ontario, I, I think I might be working with Wanda Sykes in my head. Yeah. That's what I was thinking. Yeah. So I was like, I want to be sober. And they're like, uh, for the drive, but to work with her especially. And they're like, well, yeah, but if you don't drink, we can't drink. So you're like pre-approved. I am the... I am the... You're the canary in the coal mine. Yes. I am the canary in the coal mine. By the way, the best analogy when you were saying this, and I wanted to say this to you, the analogy of uh, white guys, I guess, talk about this or that because it's harder to talk about and it's... And it's it, there's more of a ward. All I thought was uh, the George Clooney movie with Mark Wahlberg, where they go out fishing, and he's like, "Everyone's coming in, but as a comic, you got to be the one boat going out in the storm, going fuck it. I'm going to see if I can come back with a big tuna." Yeah. Like, uh, but yeah, I am the canary in the coal mine. If like, and if I choose not to drink, oh, it sucks for everybody. Yeah. Like I didn't drink at this event. Let's just say we had an event for school and I didn't I and people were drinking and I didn't drink and they all got in trouble and someone said had you drank no one would have gotten in trouble yeah and I was like really and they're like yeah because it's okay if you they need it. you to lower the bar for everybody exactly I'm like the priest who molests young boys so when you go to heaven what well it's a joke I used to have about I support priests molesting young boys because I plan on going to heaven too so when you get to the gates they're like ugh they just lower the bar by five feet. <laughs> right. Do you fuck young boys? No, no, just right. a handjob from a stripper. Go ahead. Right, right, right. So yeah, I'm the priest that... <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Now, I think that that's... If you fuck around with your wife at a party in a way that is edgy and free and it shows love underneath, yeah. everybody starts behaving that way. And it like we do this comedy benefit when our kids went to a preschool. And so... It it was kind of hard to get in, and it's not that it was a ritzy one. It was just it's this very special teaching philosophy that called the Reggio technique that they got from Italy, and it just was so everybody that I knew that had gone to that school was very like you know profoundly affected. The kids had been crazy, and now they were normal, and they loved the teachers, and they taught the they teach the parents how to parent better because you don't know what the fuck you're doing when you got a kid in preschool. Yeah, and so to get into the school. It was impossible. My friend said, well, they're always looking for a benefit, so why don't you do a comedy benefit? So I threw this comedy benefit, and they loved it, and they let me in. But what I did was, then the second year, once I was in, I started booking the filthiest comics I could find because I realized these people are used to being around the kids and the teachers all the time. Now it's like parents' night out. Let's blow it out. Let's let them really... So I would book like Louis C.K. Actually, Louis, I got Louis' kid into the school. And the way I got him in was I go, come do the comedy benefit. 
Zach Galifianakis has done it. Sarah Silverman, Jimmy Kimmel. Holy shit! And, and so they come in and they just are raunchy. And people, it's people say this is the greatest night of the year for me. It's really? such a release, Reese, release for them. Reese, yeah. it's such a Reese Witherspoon for them. <laughs> when I first moved to LA, I was at a call, I was at a cafe, and Reese Witherspoon was sitting at a table, and I didn't know she. I just thought she looked like a hot chick. Yeah, and she was writing in her diary total fucking move I would have done in Florida State and I just kind of leaned over and started reading her diary out loud and I was like I don't know what I'm going to do with my hey and she was like are you reading that and I was like yeah and then I was like thinking I could parlay it into some sort of icebreaker and when she turned I realized that's Reese Witherspoon and I've just been reading her diary and she was really offended and there and I was like oh and I just walked away <laughs> I was like <laughs> Jones on Sixth. It was on Third Street or Jones on Third. Is it Jones yeah, on Sixth? Yeah, yeah. It's over in right on Formosa. Yeah. So, uh, <laughs> so yeah. Wow. But, um. So, uh, what do you have to plug? Anything to plug? Well, um, well, I got this. Uh, I'm doing an episode of Louis. Uh, can I can I drop his name more in one podcast? Hey, I, I talk about fucking Attell or Rogan one more time. All right. Well, I'm doing an episode of Louis in two weeks, and which I guess will be the week this comes out. And then this new series called Men Something on True TV. Um, my podcast is Fitz Dog Radio. Yeah. The new one-hour special is on Netflix. It's called Life on Stage. And that's done in your hometown, right? That was done in Tarrytown, New York, in a theater built in 1885. And uh, very All the proud people of it. And the stories are in the room, too. A lot of the, yeah, a lot of kids I went to school with, my friends and family, they're all there. And it was, uh, it was a pretty special night for me. And I think this, I think the special came out okay, and uh, and then I got tour dates coming up. If you go to fitzdog.com, I'm coming to Raleigh, North Carolina, um, uh, Foxwoods in Connecticut. Ooh, I just left Foxwoods. I had the fucking greatest time. It's fun as hell. I had the greatest yeah, time. Row- I could see you doing well there. It's rowdy, fun crowds. Yeah, I had yeah. a blast. Yeah, and then um, uh, Seattle. I forget Phoenix. I got a bunch of dates coming up, so check them out. Nice, man. Well, I appreciate you doing this, yeah. Greg. I, oh, thanks for having me, man. And no, thanks for is, saying all the nice things. No, and- no, no. I'd like to do. I try to do. Um, I, what What's really fun is like like a couple times we've done like Sunday afternoons where we have our kids over and yeah. Joey Diaz will bring his kid over and uh-huh. you know like and we'll have a bunch of people here and do a podcast in the middle of the party. My wife fucking hates it. Yeah, but it's really fun. So maybe how old are your kids? Thirteen and ten. Oh, that's right out of the. You know, we're. Uh, I don't know, I'll tell you afterwards. Okay. All right. Uh, I appreciate this, Greg. All right, man. Wait, 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 wait. Can you tell everyone that wasn't at the cowhead roast what your the bit that killed so hard was? Oh God! Because <laughs> that's how we started it. So let's bring it full circle. Well, ca- cowhead was. Uh, who's this? This anyone who listens to your podcast, I'm sure knows him. So his grandmother was there, and I was told that she had that they had matching um, Yankees, Yankees tattoos. tattoos. <laughs> And I said, but hers shows a lot more commitment because uh, uh, he got his on his shoulder and hers is stamped on her vagina. And it's amazing because, you know, uh, she's got, uh, she put a bat, little mini batting helmet on her clitoris and she's in the room and she's, she's 88 years old. And I say, and, and I go, and then she got the pinstripes. Well, actually, those are stretch marks from um, fucking, uh, from fucking, uh, what's his name? Who's the black uh First black Jackie Robinson, Jackie Robinson from fucking Jackie Robinson's big black cock, and then, and then she got a dugout put in her asshole, an actual major league dugout, and she brings in nine guys from a different city every weekend, and they spit tobacco juice back there, 
and I, I kept going on about it. And so then, and like at this point, at this point, she has stood up in the fucking room. She stood up and she came to the front. <laughs> she of She starts stage. walking, but Greg's not. I don't know if you didn't no, see I her. No, I had finished. I had finished my set. Yeah. As soon as I finished, she walked up and she gave me the finger in front yes. of the whole room. People went fucking crazy, and I went down with the microphone. And I said, "I didn't know you were still alive." <laughs> And oh, it was so great! Cowhead was dying. It was. We were all on the fucking floor. It was the highlight of the night. And then, and and then, and then I got up on stage, and it was. I remember as I or I got up to the podium, and there were, everyone was still rumbling. Yeah, and they were still rumbling, and I realized how fucking drunk I was. Anxiety sets in of like I don't have any joke like that. Uh, I have no fucking jokes. My only joke was and like and then I realized that I hadn't even really thought out my jokes at all. Like I had one. I go. I haven't seen. I go, Greg Fitzsimmons is here. I haven't seen something that small and white since the Mars rover. And then and it doesn't really get a laugh, at, or it gets like a mediocre laugh, and I go, I don't even know what the Mars rover looks like. <laughs> and I don't even know if it was successful or not. Like, I just, it just made sense in the joke. But you were so honest about where you were at yeah. in the show that you were drunk and that I had just killed, and you just started laughing, and it all worked. It was- I literally was like the fourth grader, or I was the, the first grader who goes up on stage and reads a joke book and yeah. is only getting laughs because he thinks the jokes are funny. <laughs> and I, and oh, it was fucking yeah. great. Yeah. Well, thanks, Greg. I appreciate it, man. All right. Thanks for having me. I'll talk to you later. This episode was brought to you by The Machine.